We're reading today from Revelation chapter 14, the first 13 verses. Then I looked and beheld, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call. For the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for the deeds follow them. All right, good morning, everybody. Is doing all right? Recover from last night, I hope. <laughs> Working on it. Yeah. Hey, a couple things before we dive in this morning. First of all, thank you uh, to everybody who helped out yesterday at the International Festival, all those who were here helping, all those who were praying, all those who showed up. Uh, it was a wonderful day. Um, I'm selfishly thanking you because it's one of my favorite days of the year. And so thank you for all the work that uh, went into that. I really had a nice time. And Certainly, we pray that it's a blessing to our neighbors in the neighborhood. Uh, secondly, tonight's that uh, joint prayer service, prayer and worship service with a variety of churches from Delaware County. We're going to be meeting over at Manoa Community Church at 6 o'clock uh, just for an hour's worth of prayer and worship together. If you want to come worship with your brothers and sisters uh, across Delaware County, it would be a great night to do that. Uh, we'll either meet there at 6 or if you want to carpool with any of us here, we're going to be meeting probably around like 520 uh, with the goal of meeting, leaving shortly thereafter and heading up there. 
other announcement. Uh, you know, in the life of, of God's church, or in, I should say in the worship of God's church, all throughout the scriptures, a key element of worshiping God, it's not always a comfortable element, but a key element of worshiping God is lamenting. Right? So you find all across the scriptures, people lamenting in worship to God. Like sometimes we think, well, I'm not allowed to do that. <laughs> like come with sorrow or come with despair or come with depression or darkness or heaviness. But all throughout the scripture, you see people doing that. Come with lamenting the heavy things on their own hearts and lives. Uh, lamenting things going on in the hearts and lives of their brothers and sisters. Lamenting things going on around the world. And there's a group of people here at Grace Church that would like to see that uh, be more a part of our worship. And so, you know, I've been working uh, diligently to prepare some uh, worship services of lament for us. The first of which is going to be on November 18th. It's a Friday evening. And uh, from 7 to 8. Uh, we'll be uh, 7 to 8 or 8, 15, 830. Time of just lamenting before the Lord. Um, and so... If you ever find there's a heaviness on your hearts that you just need to pour out somehow before God. Right? If you just watch the Phillies lose the World Series and you're feeling down about that, uh, grow up. <laughs> Somebody needs to tell me that. Right? If there's other heavy things, or even if you're not heavy, and if you're not feeling sadness and despair, it's still yet a good thing to come to a service like this and to speak and sing truth perhaps over your brothers and sisters who might be carrying heavy stuff and just need to hear that. Uh, so if you need for more information about that, I just want to give you a heads up that that's coming November 18th, planning out a few of these services between now and Easter. Uh, if you'd like more information about that, you can come talk to any one of the pastors. Or actually, uh, if you were at, we, there's, this team is actually putting together, they actually did a demo service to try and work this out. If you were part of that demo service, can you just raise your hand? There you go. So if you... So if you have any questions about what it means to lament before the Lord, what kind of service this might be, what am I walking into, talk to one of those people with their hands up. They would give you some good info. All right. That's all the announcements I got. Pastor Mark might have a few more at the end. Let's talk Revelation 14. All right. Great passage of Scripture loaded with so much rich imagery. I hope, and I apologize in advance. It is, the hardest thing about preaching through the book of Revelation is there is so much rich and great imagery that I'd love to just dive in on and pick apart and slow down and just soak it all in, right? But we would be working through Revelation until the Lord comes if we did that. So I'm trying to move through this stuff as quick as I can, right? And there's a lot of stuff in Revelation 14. We're going to touch on it. We won't be able to hit all of it. But here's the main question I'm hoping to answer this morning. If you walk away Understanding this question, we've done the job. If not, please come talk to me afterwards and we'll try to clear it up. But here's the question. Why is it good news that the hour of God's judgment has come in the passage that we're reading? All right, when we think about good news, gospel, right, actually in the middle of our passage here, we see this angel coming out proclaiming this eternal gospel which literally means good news, proclaiming good news throughout all the earth, that the hour of God's judgment has come. And see, when we think about good news or telling somebody the good news of the Christian faith, I'm guessing that most of us don't lead that conversation with, one day, God's judgment will come. <laughs> you know, or when we think about God 
and his glory and the things that we celebrate, right? It's rare that our minds are going and giving thanks for and celebrating the coming judgment of God. So that's the question. Why is this good news that is being proclaimed across the world that the hour of God's judgment has come? Sometimes I think when we think about God's judgment, certainly if you haven't grown up in the church, um, I often think that when people think about God's judgment and they get these, I don't like that, to think about that, I think oftentimes that's because we're thinking about it from the wrong perspective. And sometimes in the church, we make a similar, uh, well, I should say it this way. Sometimes even within the church, if you've grown up in the church, sometimes when we think about God's judgment, we miss sometimes what it's really is all about because we're thinking about it from the wrong story. So we want to kind of talk through that a bit this morning. But again, primary question, why is the coming judgment of God good news? Okay, that's where we're going. We're in the book of Revelation. Hopefully by now you can repeat my intro spiel to all this, right? Heavy, symbolic book that gives us truth in the form of images, right? And the goal of the book of Revelation is to pull back that curtain in the life in between the resurrection of Christ and the future coming of Christ so that you can see some of the deeper, hidden spiritual realities. Uh, Yesterday we were setting up for the international festival. Kate was with me. And when we were done setting up and things, Kate said, what do I do now? i got a couple hours to kill before the festival starts. And she said, I probably should go clean my room. Because that's what we try to do on Saturdays, you know, get the room straightened up. But then she said, you know, but it's really not all that bad. I don't think there's anything on the floor. I've managed to put it all onto my desk. And her desk has one of those pull-down things. You can't even see it, she said. (laughs) Right? But any parent knows if you're going in to inspect a room, you don't just look on the floor or look on the bed. You open up the closets, right? Because chances are somebody maybe has gone and just plowed everything in there. You open and it all just falls right back out, right? Almost like in a similar way, the book of Revelation would have us. If you ever find yourself taking inventory of your life or stock of your life or whatever, it would say, hey, pull back the curtain a little bit. Right, And it would challenge you that if you could see behind the curtain, even just for a moment, and you could see the spiritual realities, the spiritual conflict, the spiritual warfare that is raging, you you would take the health of your spiritual life a whole lot more seriously. Or you would take your worship and what you're worshiping a whole lot more seriously. Or you would take much more seriously the question of what are you, what is your life following? Right? That's the goal of the book of Revelation, with vivid imagery, almost to shock you awake that there is stuff going on all around you that you dare not be complacent towards, whoever you are, follower of Christ or not. And, okay, so we're in this section now where we've been introduced to some of these really shady characters, right? this dragon who is waging his war against God. And part of how he's waging that war is by going after his people, the people that reflect him and his character. And he's waging that war by giving his power and his authority and his might to this beast that rises up out of the abyss of the sea with its seven heads, its leopard's body, its lion's mouth, its bare paws. And it's waging its war through this not so hideous beast, almost a cute looking beast who comes and sweet talks people to get them to worship and bow down before the first beast. 
right? And we're moving into this section now where for the next few chapters, really, you could say argue for the rest of the book now, God is going to unpack what he's going to do with these beasts and this unholy triumvirate, this unholy trinity, and how each of these characters is going to be judged. And so that's what we're sort of setting up this morning. We're just sort of being introed into this judgment of God that's going to fall against this unholy trinity and those who are worshiping it. And so we want to talk about that, right? And in our passage today, there's this contrast. It's almost like this vivid I don't know, it seems kind of vivid to me, where on the one hand, we've, we've heard about this dragon and this beast and this other false prophet and how they're conniving. And then now, as the curtain is pulled back, we're seeing this other picture of a cute little lamb. And here's our lamb again. Again, like this, don't miss the contrast there, right? This hideous beast with the seven heads flailing all over the place and the leopard's body. And then this cute little lamb. It looks like it's been slain. This lamb who we've already been introduced before, the symbolic representation of Christ. And this lamb standing on top of Mount Zion. Another callback, throwback to Psalm 2. I have, a, I have set my king on my holy hill. All right? And this lamb, this king, he's not up there alone. But he's surrounded uh, by 144,000. 144,000. Uh, we've been introduced to these people before, all, uh, back in chapter 7, and we were looking at that. We were talking about how this is probably a symbolic representation of the full company of God's people. Right? God's people throughout Scripture have association with groups of 12, right? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles and disciples who instrumental in the advance of the church, right? What's 144,000? It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 1,000 being the kind of a number of fullness, right? So here you have the, the full company of God's people gathered with the Lamb on Mount Zion. There's some question, is this Mount Zion, is this an earthly Mount Zion, or is this the heavenly Mount Zion that like the writer of Hebrews talks about? You can make the argument one way or the other. If you ask me today, I'd probably fall on. It's the heavenly Mount Zion because they're also gathered in the presence of the elders. And, you know, the angels and the creatures who are all there as well worshiping. But whatever, you can fall wherever you fall on that question. But we get a little bit more description of these 144,000. We're told, for instance, that they are sealed with the name of the Father written on their forehead. Right? Remember last week? This is one of the things the beast is going around doing, stamping everybody with his own seal. And we talked about how this is counterfeit activity. Right? The beast sees, oh, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing this, thinking, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Maybe I should do that too. So he's stamping, but this is the real seal. God is writing his own name on their foreheads. You know, which is this powerful image that they belong to him. He has claimed them. They're his. They're forever sealed and marked as belonging to him. They're part of his eternal covenant family. You know, and also, don't miss too, that to bear the name of the Father means that we bear, almost like we bear his image. Right? It's like if I tell my kids, hey, you're Sussex. So they'll never be caught wearing a Houston Astros jersey ever <laughs> because you're Sussex and you can't, you know, you represent the Sussex name, right? On and on and on, right? In a similar way, to have the, the name of the Father written on their foreheads, 
right? It's this powerful symbol that not only are they sealed and kept and belonging to his eternal family, but they're the people who bear that name and carry that image, carry his character and his likeness and his glory out into this world that is dying, worshiping these counterfeits, these knockoffs, right? Each one of you, sealed by the Spirit, You carry his image. You bear that out into the world. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? To be a follower of Jesus is not just that we've been saved from the judgment of God. It's also that we've been sent to bear his likeness and his image and who he is into a world that needs to see that. Because they're way more enamored with these counterfeit knockoffs. Okay, so that's that's part of this 144,000. We find that they're also singing a song. A new song, and nobody knows but them. Uh, anytime you hear this idea of a new song in the book, it's because something dramatic has just happened. Right? They're singing a new song because something great has taken place. Some new victory has occurred. Right? This is probably in reference to the final full victory of Christ over his enemies. And so, right, they're, so they're singing, and they're celebrating that. They're doing what, I don't know, just spoken word can't do. They're, they're, they're putting it to song. When Amy's grandmother was dying a couple years ago, we had a night where we were all up, uh, you know, around her bed, and we were singing together. I had my guitar. We were singing. Aunts and uncles were all there, and we're just singing. We're singing hymns, you know, some of her favorite hymns, and it was really powerful for a lot of reasons. One it was powerful because they had this uh, this juxtaposition of the ugliness of death, but then the reminders of God's beauty and his goodness and his faithfulness, even in the darkest moments. Uh, it was somewhat powerful because you had this image of her leaving this world for the time, going out <laughs> with a choir around her singing, about to enter into this heavenly choir. People, that actually was a sobering thought. She's like, thank goodness I finally made it to this better choir. But the other powerful thought of it was, too, that, you know, there's a sense where, okay, we're going to be separated for a time. And that separation is happening through singing. You know, uh, we're singing on the way out, in a sense. And when the day comes where we're reunited in the resurrection, and all of God's people are coming together, celebrating the final, full victory of the Lamb, we're going to be singing as well, too. There's a great old hymn. It's, I know I say this a lot, but this, hands down, is my favorite hymn. <laughs> for all the saints... In the closing verses, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day where the saints triumphant rise in bright array and the king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia, alleluia. And from earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, stream in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, hallelujah. What a day that's going to be. Right, so there is this powerful... All right, we're entering into separation in song. And we're going to be reunited, reunited one day in song. So I love this image of them gathered around the lamb singing this new song. That's what I look forward to. Three other things we're told about these 144,000. It says they've not defiled themselves with women, virgins. Okay, careful here. Remember, it's an image, symbols. And there could be a lot we could say about this, but I think the simple answer to what in the world does that mean? They're not monks. 
<laughs> right? They're not the monks who've lived out in the desert, never got married or whatever. You see a little bit later on when we're talk, talking about Babylon, the mighty Babylon, who's going to be portrayed in the rest of the book as a whore and a harlot. And we're told, right, made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexuality. That's code for idolatry, right? Really, all throughout the Bible, idolatry is often portrayed as immorality or even marital unfaithfulness, right? Because in a way, that's what it is, right? We were made to know our creator, to live in covenant relationship with him, to look to him for our life, for our salvation, for our hope. And, you know, what happens when we go and worship other idols, when we take gods of money, sex, power, pleasure, whatever it is, and we exalt them to a position of honor and we bow down and worship of them, and we look to them for our life and our fulfillment and our satisfaction and our salvation. Well, you could say we're sinning. Yeah, sure. But even a more accurate way to put it is we're, we're committing covenant unfaithfulness. We're giving of ourselves to another lover or being unfaithful. And I think that's the image here, right? You're going to see as we keep going through Revelation, the church is going to be portrayed as this pure bride, right? And and that's the picture here. It's not, well, I mean, you should read sexual immorality in the book of Revelation. It certainly could involve that. But the bigger picture is idolatry, that we've traded our covenant allegiances and we've entered into an unholy relationship with some other God. Okay, so these 144,000, they haven't done that. They're staying faithful and true to their creator and to the lamb and to the spirit. Uh, And as they're doing that, there's no lie in their mouths, right? Those with the mark of the unholy trinity, right? Satan, the father of lies. They can't help but bear the resemblance of lies, right? But those who are true, To the living God, the true creator, the one in whom there is no deceit, no darkness at all. Well, then on his people who bear that and resemblance, right? There's no lie found in their mouths. And the text says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. I don't know if you've ever seen that old Christian symbol of a lamb who's carrying a flag as if he were, you know, the flag bearer marching out into battle. Right? That's a very ancient symbol because from day one, that's a powerful way to describe what it means to be a Christian. You follow the lamb wherever he goes. It's part of the reason I'm not a huge fan of the term believer <laughs> to describe Christians, right? Because in our day and age, we seem to have reduced the Christian life to just believing the right things. But all throughout the scriptures, it's much bigger than that. And all throughout church history, we've known, no, no, no. A much better description of what it means to be a Christian is that you're a follower And you follow the lamb wherever he goes and however he goes. Again, this cute little lamb juxtaposed to this beast and this false prophet and this dragon. Okay, so that leads us then into uh, this next section where, okay, here's the action. We got three angels that are coming. And they're making these declarations. The first... One angel comes, and he's got this eternal gospel that is going to be preached to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation all over the world. Another wonderful picture in Revelation. Right? Hopefully by now you've picked it up over and over again that the message of the gospel, 
or what this good news is. It's not just for you, not just for me, not just for this nice church here in Wallingford, Pennsylvania. It's for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation all around the world. Another reason why I love the International Festival. <laughs> yes, it has a tremendous food. Yeah, there was great music. Uh, you had people, you know, doing some of their traditional ethnic dances. Oh, it was such a fun day. The weather was great. And it's a way that we can show honor to some of these, these people in our neighborhoods and where they're coming from. But also, like, there's a part of it where this just feels like the eternal kingdom. Because right? that's what it's going to be. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathering together, singing, dancing, enjoying incredible food, <laughs> meeting great people. There was a time where I had to come into the church uh, and get something out of the kitchen. And as I was walking out, we had a polka band at this one point in time. And I'm walking out, and, you know, it's a beautiful day. There's people all around. We're having fun. The polka band is playing Green Day with the accordion and, and the tuba. And Green Day was all, you know, was all the rage when I was in high school. So I'm walking out thinking, does it get any better than this? My family's here. The church family is here. We got the polka band playing. We got great music. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to, on and on we could go about that. But... Another great symbol. You see why I get stuck in these vivid images? (laughs) So this angel's coming and he's proclaiming people from every tongue, tribe, and nation this eternal gospel. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Second angel comes. Fallen, it declares. Fallen is Babylon, right? The one who made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexuality. And then the third angel comes and declares something which is pretty gruesome and pretty unsettling. That those who worship the beast and receive its mark, they suffer his fate. Namely, that they're going to be tormented by fire and pitch or fire and brimstone. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And so here we go. What, what, what do we do with these images, this graphic image here? And there's two things I need you to see. I need you to think about. Two images in this text that we're going to have to think about in relation to the rest of the scriptures. One is Babylon. And two is this whole idea of fire and brimstone and smoke rising from the ashes. That's actually a direct quote from Isaiah 34, where it's talking about the destruction of the nation of Edom. All right? And so two images that are going to help us make sense of this, Babylon and Edom and the destruction of Edom. All right? So bear with me, stick with me. I'm going to try to move through these so we can get you out of here in a good time. All right? Who's Babylon in the Bible? Babylon is the notorious bad guys, <laughs> right? There are numerous places in the scripture where you've got some bad characters and they sometimes get referred to as Babylon because Babylon were just the prototypical bad guys throughout the text because it was the Babylonian empire that came in and laid waste to Israel, to God's people in the Old Testament. You know, and Babylon is just, you know, it's horrendous what they would do. They would... They would come and they would destroy the armies, you know, whatever nation they were conquering. They would burn the cities to the ground. They would especially burn the temple and the high places, right? As this, you know, declaration, ha, our God has beat your God. And then 
what they would do as sort of like this act of final annihilation of a whole group of people in a culture. They would take any survivors left and they would carry them away from their homeland, carry them away from their families, carry them away from their villages, and they would take them and they would scatter them in exile. Disperse them, isolate them, get them alone so they have no other option but to assimilate into Babylonian culture. And by doing that, systematically, you're eradicating the whole people, culture, right? And this was this yeah, horrendous way of just eliminating a people, right? And waging war against God and his people, right? So Babylonian, Babylon, prototypical bad guys. And here's the thing. You know, imagine that you're one of those exiles that gets carried off and you're, you're taking, you're wretched away from your home, you're wretched away from your family, your village, your people, you're carried into exile, you're isolated, you're alone, right? You're utterly powerless against this mighty, oppressive Babylonian empire. Like, what else do you possibly have but to cry out for God, to God to come and to fight on your behalf? to wage war and to deliver and to deal with the evil oppressors. You know, again, sometimes when we think of God's judgment, part of the reason that's unsettling maybe to us in our culture is because we have it pretty well. We've managed to secure for ourselves lives of relative comfort, relative ease, relative enjoyment, and we have enough power that we can hold on to that ourselves. We can hold on to that privilege. We can hold on to the good life that we've attained. And so the idea of God coming and judging, well, at best, that's a, that more seems like, well, is that truly necessary? Right, but you put yourself in the mindset of people around the world who for their whole lives have only known hardship and suffering maybe who their own lives have just had to go day to day trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to find food to eat? Where am I going to find the health care that I need to get over this virus or whatever is going on? And maybe for all their life have suffered because there's political machinery and schemes taking place to behind the scenes that funnel all the resources and all the wealth to the powerful or to the elite while they have to suffer. Can you see for them how this declaration that God is going to come, he's going to judge He's going to come and he's going to pronounce that wrong and evil and unjust. And he's going to deal with those who perpetuate that. Can you see how that would be good news for them? Right? All throughout history, the oppressed, the sufferers, the weak, the marginalized have found the message of God's judgment to be good news it was Allison Craybill. He's written a lot on the book of Revelation. He said, he said this, which I thought was helpful. He says, perhaps what the Christian church in the West, that's us, today needs is more anger and not less. We may need revelation to jolt us out of our slumber, to open our eyes, to see the idolatry and injustice that pervade globalization and empire today. He says something beastly is at work For example, in a world where people starve to death or die of preventable disease while nations spend billions on weapons and leisure. I think there's something to that. And I think that's part of the image, it's part of why this is good news. But we're not done yet. Think about Edom for a second. Anybody know who the descendants, who the Edomites descended from? Wow, look at that. We got our Bible trivia group in force. Yeah, Esau. 
who was the brother of Jacob, who's the grandfather of Israel, right? So there's sort of this sibling relationship between Edom and Israel. And you could say there was sibling rivalry, maybe, throughout their history together. They lived in close proximity. They would have spats and fights from time to time. But at the end of the day, the idea was, yeah, but we're we're brothers here. And at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, we're going to have each other's back. One of the great horrors in the Old Testament, though, is when Babylon comes working its way through Israel, leveling Israel to the ground. They make it to Jerusalem, and they're gathered around the gates of Jerusalem, ready to storm the gates and level the city to the ground, as Israel is perhaps looking to its brother Edom to come to their defense. Edom turns away, says, let it burn. There's actually been some sources that say the Edomites participated in the burning of Jerusalem to the ground. Right? And so in the time, so there it was, in their dark, time of darkest need. And here it was, when, when everything is coming to a head, the forces, you know, God's people and his intentions and the forces of evil coming to a head, where do the Edomites fall? They fall with the Babylonians. Right? And so you get like Psalms like 137. It says, by the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. How should we sing, they say, the Lord's song in a foreign land. You know, in the last verse is, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. But in the middle of that psalm, it says, Oh, and Lord, remember the Edomites, who on the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare. Lay it bare. Burn it down to its foundations. Right? So there's this sense, too, of this judgment that's going to come on Edom. And the thing is, if you read Isaiah 34, you get the exact same language of Edom. Her streams are going to be turned to pitch and to fire. And the smoke of her ashes is going to ascend forever. And if you keep reading, the symbolism there is meant to say, Essentially, there'll be no more. God is going to do what they did or what they participated in, burn that to the ground such that they are never again. They exist no more in his creation. The picture is almost like, you know, if you have a campfire and at the end of the night, you know, the wood is all burnt down. All that's left are these burning embers and maybe a trickle of smoke that's just going up. Right? That's the picture of Edom after the judgment of God in Isaiah 34, all that's left are these burning embers and this trickle of smoke that goes up forever as the symbol that they are no more, right? Which is so important in this imagery of God's judgment. Essentially, when God comes to judge, he is going to not only deal with the oppressors and all those who align themselves with the beast, but he's going to fully eradicate them from his creation, right? When the final day comes, And, you know, the full glory of the lamb has been revealed. And there's the beast with all of his heads waving around and its lion's mouth and its bare claws. At the end of the day, when this comes to a head, those who say, give me the beast, give me his power, give me his might, give me his authority, go ahead, stamp it on my head. I'll fight win the battle, whatever. I'm all in over here. When the creator comes... He's going to judge that as wrong, and he's going to get it out of his creation. Right? The picture here more is one of this God who is 
who created this world for us to enjoy, for us to live in relationship with him, right? It's gotten all mucked up by sin and evil and death, but a day is coming when God is going to come and he's going to purify that, cleanse it, get out of his creation, all that aligns itself with this beastly faction. So we can have this sort of restoration of Genesis, Eden. Uh, It's that time of year. Weather is starting to turn cold, which means that all the little furry creatures of the field are trying to find warm, safe haven. <laughs> and there apparently must be all sorts of nice little uh, cracks or whatever in the walls of the, of the parsonage over there. And so all these little mice are coming to find way. So this is the time of year where Amy, try as she might, wages war <laughs> against these little vermin. And she has nothing necessarily against the mice per se, whatever, but her idea is get them out of the house. They don't belong here. They are causing who knows what in our house. And so get them out. Amy fights the war much more valiant than I do. She will tell you all about that and her frustrations with why I just sit on the couch and, hey, look, who's there? Right, right, right. Anyway, <laughs> the point being, that's, that's the picture. God is going to come and he's going to wage war for his creation that he loves dearly. Sometimes our view of God's judgment is skewed because we think of eternity as these two spiritual planes of existence out there. Uh, you know, one heaven where we're sitting on clouds in streets of gold with harps and singing and dancing. And this other, this place of hell, which is this, all these flames and this dragon with a pitchfork and whatever. And both of those images are just weird takes on the sim- symbolism of the, of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Right? Especially when you come into the book of Revelation, the picture of eternity is not necessarily heaven and hell. The picture of eternity is earth restored and not earth. <laughs> right? You get to the closing chapters. Heaven is emptied and the saints that are on the heavenly Mount Zion come back to a restored earth. And who is outside the gates? Who has no access? But it's the evil, the wicked, the idolaters, the sexually immoral, those who've worshipped the beast. Gone. There's more to say about that. But for today, can you begin to see why this is good news, especially for those who are suffering? Today's the day where we remember the persecuted church. Pastor Tim prayed for them. Uh, It's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Can you just imagine how this is good news for the persecuted church? It has to live in fear every time they gather for worship or has to live in fear every time they choose to move into public with the name of the Father on their forehead who has to live in fear every time they choose not to participate in the sacred rituals of the culture around them, but instead keep themselves pure for their coming bride. What good news it is for them that the hour is coming when God will judge and will God will remove from his creation all those who in the very end align themselves with the beast and want nothing more but to wage against God and his people eternally. God will remove them from his creation. Oh, man, we're already at 11.10. I warned you at the beginning. This is hard for me. But two other quick things you need to see. We're closing with this. Notice where the passage goes then. The passage doesn't go. So this calls for a sober repentance of the nations. It could. It doesn't. It says instead, here is a call for endurance of the saints. This picture, this image of judgment, this pulling behind the curtain is meant to wake up the saints to say, hey, make sure 
you're not flirting with the whore. Make sure (laughs) that you are not allowing some beast to be writing his name on your head. Make sure you are not taking the sign and the mark so that you can buy and sell and trade and participate in the cultural festivities. Make sure you are staying pure. Make sure you are keeping the commandments of God and living in faith to Jesus. Because this day is coming. And also because that's our job. Our job is to reflect him, to carry his name, to carry his goodness and his richness to a world that's drowning again in counterfeit worship, right? So wake up, see the need, stay pure, live as a pure and undefiled living example, even if it means death. That's where the closing line is. Blessed are those now. And then I heard the final voice say, blessed are those now who die in the Lord for their labors follow them, right? So even if, even if our, our laboring, even if our, our lives of faith and commitment lead ultimately perhaps to persecution and God forbid death itself, right? You've got this voice that says, yeah, and blessed are you because you join that company on the heavenly Mount Zion and your labors follow you. Oh, which is another powerful image. Did you pick it up also in the beginning? Those 144,000, they're called the first fruits. First fruits, it's the first fruit of the harvest, right? When our little peach trees start blooming. First fruits, the first, first peaches that are ripe. And in Israel, you would take those first fruits and you would sacrifice them to God at the beginning of the great harvest, right? So I love this possibility, that the 144,000, the company of God's people, who perhaps suffered and died and are gathered around the, the Lamb and the throne, they're just the first fruits who have been sacrificed to God and are now the means through which God brings in the full harvest of his people at the end of the age. And this is why your labor is never in vain, because God's going to take that labor and he's going to use it to advance his kingdom, to grow his church, to bring in the full harvest at the very end. Again, notice... Well, not again, but notice it's not that the labors precede us and that that's whatever, our merit to getting into heaven, right? Because our labors, you know, have gone ahead and God sees them and says, okay, good job, brother, you're in. No, we're, we're only there gathered on from because God has stamped us and sealed us by his love and called us to this task of being his sacrificial witnesses, right? But the labors for sure do follow us. It's not in vain. Everything that we've done now, You know, we don't say, well, that was all for nothing because death kills it all. No, 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 no. Because of the resurrection and because of what Jesus is doing, man, those labors follow us. We were over at Walton Franz. Where is I thought I saw them here today. Now they're here somewhere. We were at Walton Franz uh, this this past week. The elders were there praying for Fran, who's just, and and Walt too. Both have just been racked over the calls the past couple years with illness. Which, by the way, you ever want, if you're ever struggling, call the elders. Man, it's powerful when the elders come and pray over you and speak God's words and his wisdom over you. But we were there, and I don't think Fran would mind me saying that one of the ways that Satan attacks her in this is he essentially calls her useless. Man, as you're struggling with your illnesses and the things that you're working through, look, you can't, you're of no value and no use to the church, right? She can't do the things that she used to do. She can't use her gifts the way that she used to, right? And I want to say to her, this passage, right? That 
in the Lord, right? This labor is never in vain anymore. These labors follow you, right? As you, even in your weakness, you pray for God's people. Or in your weakness, as you declare the goodness, as she did to all of us elders in the room, as you declare the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the midst of her trial, man, that, that labor is not wasted. That's going to follow you. And God is going to use that and sanctify that and use it to advance his kingdom and to grow his church. We've been singing this new song, Lord, establish the work of our hands. You remember that song we've been singing? And I said to Fuzzy at one point when we were introducing that song, I said, I don't know about this song. It seems a little weird to me because it's, it's, it's basically singing through Psalm 90. And the song that we sing ends with that hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. But Psalm 90 doesn't end in hallelujahs. Psalm 90 is a pretty sad and sobering psalm. It's a psalm written probably in exile. The line of the kings has failed. We're carried away. And it just sort of seems like, what is there anymore? And so just the closing plea is somehow, Lord, would you establish the work of our hands? And that's it. And so the song felt a little weird to me because it didn't keep in tenor with a, uh, uh, of Psalm 90. But then as I was thinking about it a little bit more, I was realizing, yeah, but the thing is, we don't sing Psalm 90 the way those did pre-resurrection. Yeah, where death wins and sucks the life out of everything you do. Right? We sing Psalm 90 now in the back end of resurrection. We sing Psalm 90 on the back end of ascension and enthronement, such that we know now that yet nothing we do is ever in vain. Such that we can sing those words of the Apostle Paul after his glorious resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, as he's extolling the glories of resurrection and what that means for his people. His closing line is, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. And so we can sing that song now. We can sing the song that we're going to sing, minor days of times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel, where I see no earthly good. Yet mine is peace that flows from heaven, and the strength, and the strength, in times of need, (laughs) I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in, and we might add, and through me. So that's the song we sing in the in-between until the the new song comes. I'll invite you to stand. We'll call the worship team up for it. We'll sing that song, Christ is Mine Forevermore, and we'll do it together. Thank you, Angela. (laughs) In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.